we realized, look, for the first time ever, the majority of humanity, maybe not 100% of humanity, but the majority of humanity, you can now finally reach them through the internet. You know, before before the internet, if you wanted to, to, to teach, you know, a billion people something, you had to build a lot of schools. And that was just very expensive. So, you know, we thought, okay, we could reach well, the majority of humanity. We can teach them something. We can teach them some stuff. That's Luis Bon Arn, the co-founder and CEO of Duolingo. If you're not one of their 500 million users, Duolingo is a phenomenally successful app where you practice a language in small chunks every day. Almost like a game, you unlock new levels and progress through the language learning process by earning points, for example, by getting vocabulary or grammar right. Launched in 2012, it has become the number one language learning app and the most downloaded education app in the world. The company floated in 2021 and currently has a market cap of just under $4 billion. Now, it's rare to meet a founder who is brilliant at both invention and business, but Luis is one of them. And another thing that blew my mind meeting Luis, he also invented Capture. You know those squiggly letters you have to write out to prove you're not a computer? The guy is a genius, but seriously, and we'll get into that. Welcome back to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and in my conversations with other founders, I uncover the key moments in their life that made them into the leaders they are today. Luis came up with the idea for Duolingo in 2009, when he was an associate professor in computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. I, I had a PhD student, so I had a student, his name was uh, Severin Hacker, which is an amazing last name, Hacker. Um, and, uh, you know, we started thinking about it wasn't necessarily that we wanted to start a company, but we, we thought, okay, we, we need to start a project. It was supposed to be for his PhD thesis. Like, what is his project? And, and you know, I said, well, I'll work with you and, and let's, let's come up with a project. And we both uh, um, really gravitated to education. And we started thinking, you know, what should we teach? And, uh, you know, we were wondering, should we teach math? Or should we teach computer science? Eventually, we settled on, look, let's teach languages. And the reason for that was because of English, certainly for me and certainly for him, um, he's Swiss. Uh, in both of our cases, uh, having learned English completely transformed our lives. But also, you know, if you really start looking around the world, in most countries in the world, knowledge of English significantly increases your income potential. And I personally really wanted to do a thing that teaches people English for free because of my, you know, I, I, really, I really had this view that you know, high quality education should be available to everybody, whether you have money or not. This worldview that everyone should have access to education was formed during Luis's unusual childhood in Guatemala. I grew up with my mother, who's a, a single mother, and she was a physician. I was fortunate that she spent all her, she basically spent all her money on sending me to the kind of fanciest private school in, in Guatemala. So I received the education of a rich person, even though you know, we were not particularly wealthy. I mean, in, in, in you know, in the U.S., uh, uh, doctors are, are make a lot of money. In Guatemala, doctors do not make a lot of money. Just to, just to give you some context, um, when we were growing up, my mom's monthly salary was about $1,000 a month. Um, and she basically spent, you know, all she could on, on sending me to kind of the, the best school. And so, you know, from there... That's, you know, that's really the birthplace of Duolingo in, in some sense. I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't working on Duolingo back then when I was a child, but I really did see the difference between, especially if you're uh, growing up in a poor country, the difference between 
uh, those who receive a good education and those who don't. It became clear that people who are who are wealthy can buy themselves a really good education and therefore continue being wealthy because they're very well educated. And then people who are not particularly wealthy, particularly in poor countries, barely learn how to read and write and therefore are never able to make a lot of money. So that was that was my, you know, my basically my, my primary school and, and secondary school education. And then uh, I came to the United States for university. And, you know, I, I got a, 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 an undergraduate degree in mathematics and then a PhD in computer science. Yeah, you obviously have a certain perspective on the value of education based on your own experience. Um, you've had such a good one, so you want more people to have a good one. But interestingly, I'm wondering if your parents had a bad one, which then made them want to give their kids a good one. And so hopefully all routes lead to people wanting there to be more good education. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my both my parents were were medical doctors. Um, they they were never really together, so I just grew up with my mother. But both of them were medical doctors, and my mother. One interesting tidbit is, my mother had me at an at a, at a late age. I'm an only child. She had me at age 42. Before that, she was a medical student. She was the third woman to ever graduate out of medical school in all of Guatemala. You know, when she went to the university there, she uh, there were no bathrooms for women. And she, uh, you know, she's, she's a very courageous woman. She just went to the men's bathroom. She just didn't care. Um, and so that's, that's, how she, that's how she got educated. I, I think she got a relatively okay education, uh, not nearly as good as mine, but, but she, she knew early on that, that, you know, there's a huge value in education. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to be able to, to pass on. And I suppose, you know, that, um, that instinct also would drive you to have quite good work ethic, because I guess... You know, there is a there is a an interesting paradox, isn't there? You know, similarly with wealth and fame, you know, when uh, when you don't have wealth and fame, when you're growing up, you know, you might seek it and you might get it. And then with it and you have kids, it can be quite hard for your kids to have the right motivations to work hard. You know, all of this kind of stuff because they didn't necessarily have the struggle. And so this classic cycle of zigging and zagging through generations sort of just keeps happening. Um and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, what your experience has been, um, you know, related to how hard you wanted to work as well, right? Because it isn't just enough to have a good education. Um, you know, usually the most successful people aren't necessarily the smartest people. They tend to be smart and extremely hardworking people. So how would you say you describe yourself? Where do you sit in that sort of spectrum? Yes, I am one of the hardest working people I know. Um... I, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, in fact, that's probably one of my biggest life problems. I work too hard. Fortunately for me, I, this does not, this gives me energy. This does not take energy from me. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've never really been, you know, kind of like uh, burnt out because I work too hard or anything. But, uh, you know, in, in my personal life, I, I don't spend that much effort on my personal life, um, mainly because I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I, I just work too hard. And, and you're right. I mean, this is something that I am, I am very worried about. And not just me. I think a lot of people... You know, a lot of the early Duolingo employees are very hardworking people. And, you know, now we've IPO'd. Um, uh, the, many of them are, are extremely wealthy. And uh, they are, um, you know, I don't have children, but they have children. And they're p extremely concerned about the fact that their children are going to suffer absolutely no struggles. And so, you know, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's a great question. I, 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 some people are able to do it well. There's some, there's some very successful people whose children have a good work ethic. I'm, I'm not sure how they, I don't have children myself, so I, I, I don't know how they do it. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had pets. Do you have the hardest working dog in town? <laughs> 
and I, I do have a dog, but uh, she's she's a very scared little dog. Bit, bit more chill. Sounds like one of my cats. Um, okay, so getting back onto onto your journey, like, I really want to um, impress. I've done a lot of research, listened to your other interviews. You know, I want to impress on our audience the the pure fascination is what comes across, right? The fascination, the enthusiasm, the sheer intention towards essentially geeking out, I think is the best way that I can describe it, right? Your your fascination with computers certainly takes you in a certain direction. So, you know, I'd love to sort of start there. Like, when did you first get interested in computers? I first got interested in computers when I was about eight years old. Um, uh, I, it was, uh, you know, it was not that I wanted to get interested in computers. I, I, want, I, I, want, I asked my mother for a Nintendo for Christmas. Uh, all my friends or all the kids in school, this was like in the first grade or second grade or something like that. Um, all the kids in school had Nintendos and my mother refused to buy me a Nintendo and instead um, came home with a Commodore 64, which, you know, it's a computer. And I was pretty upset. Um, for one, I had no idea what to do with it. I mean, I couldn't even, you know, <laughs> I didn't even know how to turn it on really. Um, uh, but, you know, I was pretty bored. I was also an only child, and so I kind of just, I was just bored. And I guess I tried to really figure out how to use it. I, I met a couple of other people near me that had also a Commodore 64. And I learned that you could borrow games from them. I then realized I could copy their games, so I didn't need to borrow them. I could just copy them. You know, at that time, most games had some very uh, rudimentary copy protection, uh, where it was a little hard to copy them, but but it, you know I, I kind of figured out how to copy them, and so I started becoming a bit of a hub in my neighborhood of anybody who had a, a Commodore sixty four. You know, I basically had a whole game exchange system where if they gave me their games, I would copy all my games that I had back to them. And so, um, you know, my, my mother at some point uh, told me to stop that because there was there were these kind of there were adults coming to the house. I mean, I, at that time, I must have been, I don't know, 10 years old. There were adults coming to the house, basically kind of ringing the doorbell and, say, you know, saying, is, is this where is this where, you know, we can copy games? Um, and so my mom at some point, at some point told me uh, to stop that. So I was I had a little little I, I, no money was exchanged. So I, I wasn't making money off of this, but I was. I was uh, I, I amassed a collection of probably hundreds of games um, that way by by doing uh, early piracy. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO twenty seven double one at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. 
This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. The word genius is overused, but we're using it for Luis because he actually won an award for being one in 2006, the prestigious MacArthur Fellows Program Award. It's colloquially known as the Genius Grant because it said you have to be one to get it. Now, one of the reasons he won the grant was his invention of capture when he was a PhD student in the year 2000. I mean, it's changed quite a bit over time, but back then it was these distorted characters that you have to type that you have to type over the internet uh, to prove that you're a human. Uh, nowadays, captures look a little different. Um, it's it's usually what you have to do is you have you have a bunch of uh, uh, pictures of like bicycles or or cars or something, and you have to click on all the ones that are that are a bicycle or that are a traffic light or something like that. Um, but the idea with that was, uh, and, you know, this was this was my idea, uh, along with with my PhD advisor. Together, we had this idea that was, um, it's a test to distinguish whether you're a human or a computer uh, uh, on the internet. And and it turns out this is actually quite useful for a lot of things. For example, uh, the first application for that was uh, stopping spammers from obtaining millions of email accounts for free. And so no, there, no money. We never made any money off of that or anything at, at the time. It was just, you know, it was just, okay, we had this idea. It was a great idea and everybody started using it. Um, uh, and so that was, that was kind of the first wave. Um, a few years passed and um, then I, I did start a company, but it was, it was kind of a, it was a, a, an idea added on to CAPTCHA. Um, and it was this company was called Recapture. I, I you know, <laughs> I didn't come up with that that different of a name. Recapture is kind of like the redoing of Capture or something like that. Yeah, your genius only extends so far. Maybe not to naming and branding. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I can't come up with much better names. Uh, <laughs> anyways, the original Capture was in the year two thousand. In about two thousand five, um, you know, captures were super widespread. Uh, by the way, one thing that had happened in that time is every time that I met someone. You know, they would ask me what I did. Uh, you know, I would tell them that I was a PhD student in computer science. Eventually, they, they would ask more questions, and it would come up that uh, you know I had invented uh, captchas. And about more than half the people would tell me that they hated me. It's like, oh, I hate you, because um, because they're pretty annoying, etc. So so I, I was kind of thinking, um, you know, in about the year two thousand five, I was thinking, okay, these things are pretty annoying. Um, then I started thinking, okay, in addition to that, they're they're very widespread. I did a little back of the envelope calculation and I came up that, with the fact that about 200 million times a day, somebody was typing a CAPTCHA. Uh, this is in 2005. And, and I thought, okay, uh, that's really annoying. That's 200 million times a day that I annoyed somebody. And secondly, um, I started thinking about a kind of wasted human time. I started thinking, okay, look, each CAPTCHA takes about 10 seconds of time. If you multiply 200 million by 10 seconds, you get the humanity as a whole is wasting like 500,000 hours a day just just doing this annoying thing that is, you know, it was kind of a necessary evil, but, but it, it, you know, they were wasting this time. 
And I started thinking, can we use this? Can we kind of capture that for something that's useful for humanity? And it occurred to me that actually you could, and this is where reCAPTCHA came about. The idea was that you could help digitize books. And let, let me explain kind of how that worked. At the time, and there was a hu massive, a few massive efforts to try to put all the books that, that were in libraries to put them online so that people could access them online. Google had an effort. Uh, the Internet Archive had an effort. The, the, there were multiple of these efforts. And, and the way they worked is you would take a book and then you would take a digital photograph of every page of the book. And then the computer need, needed to decipher all of the words in this, in this picture. Of, of the page. Um, but for the same reason that computers were not very good at reading distorted characters, if the picture, you know, the picture was not super clear, or if the book was old and the ink had faded and the pages had turned yellow, many times the computer could not re read all the words. And so the, the book digitization process was either not very accurate, or they had to have humans kind of just type stuff. It occurred to me that instead of that, we could just take all of the words that the computer could not recognize and we could get people to read them for us while they're typing CAPTCHAs on the internet. So rather than giving CAPTCHAs that are randomly chosen letters, we started giving words that are coming out of books that the computer could not digitize. And uh, this was not a particularly large company. I mean, it had a, you know, about, a, about a dozen employees, but it was, it was a very profitable company because we were just basically getting people to help us digitize stuff. Our first contract was to uh, help digitize the old versions of the New York Times. And so uh, the idea is we had these, these old scans of the New York Times, and we were basically digitizing them by having people type captures on the internet. And we were making um, $42,000 per year of content of the New York Times that we digitized. And uh, it, was, uh, it was this amazing thing that we could digitize an entire year of the New York Times in like under a week. And then Google came and bought it to help with their book digitization process. And this is, for example, now when you see reCAPTCHA, you see it, it's a Google property. And it's it's because, you know, back in 2009, uh, Google bought this. Amazing. Love, love the unique approach, which I suppose, you know, uh, shouldn't be a surprise of someone that wins a genius award and develops a theory from a PhD. However, really love the uh, the unique approach to a business model and solving a problem and, and, and finding actually a two-sided um, you know, this is the really interesting thing with businesses. Like, how do you figure out supply and demand and actually you figured out, you know, almost like a, a virtuous circle of problems and, and solutions within the same service, which I think is, is, is unique, actually. It's quite unusual to find such clear product market fit with the way that you're solving a challenge. So really, really enjoy that uh, insight on how you find the instinct to solve a problem. Um, when it comes to Google, did you have a competitive process? Like, what, what was going through your head? So you've grown up, you know, not wealthy. Um, a student, an academic, a geek, a computer nerd, all of these things. Um, Google, you know, obviously one of, I mean, now arguably the most, but one of for sure the uh, most interesting tech companies around at the time. Um, they come and knocking. And what was that process like? Did you have multiple people come and knocking? Did you go speak to M&A advisors and go through some professional process? Or were you like, holy shit, Google want me. Okay, done. Yeah, we did. Um, so what happened is, yeah, Google was interested. At the same time, um, Amazon was also interested. And so we had a few different uh, um, bidders. We we took Google's offer, even though, by the way, Google's offer was not quite the highest. There was a, a slightly higher offer, but we thought at the time that uh, Google was the best home for reCAPTCHA. Uh, the other thing is that in all cases, all the offers at the time also involved 
the employees, and this included me, um, going to work for the comp- the acquiring company. Um, and so, you know, we made a decision. It's like, who do we want to work for? And, you know, Google was a clear winner in that. Like, everybody was pretty excited to go work for Google. So this is this is why we did that. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with that. Um, and by the way, uh, Facebook was also a potential acquirer. And actually... Uh, they were they wanted to acquire us for about the same amount, but they wanted to acquire us with Facebook stock as opposed to um, cash, and that was dumb on our end. Um, in terms of money, I mean, the, the truth is, Facebook stock from two thousand nine um, would have been. <laughs> I don't, I you know, I don't even look back to try to calculate how much that was, but I, I think we left a ton of money on the table. But honestly, we just did not believe at the time the valuation that they claimed to have was something like $8 billion or something. And we sat there and we didn't believe it. And of course, that was a complete, <laughs> you know, complete miscalculation on our end. Um, but yeah, that, yeah, that was that. And and do you uh, do you share what the valuation that you sold for was or anything like that? Is that public knowledge? It's not public knowledge, but I mean, uh, you know, it was it, for me in particular, tens of millions of dollars for me, you know, in my pocket. What's it like? to go from growing up, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but without without money, without much money for sure, um, to suddenly being rich. What actually happens to your mindset? Like, how do you think about the world? Are you, as a potential genius, able to intellectualize this stuff and become very sensible and rational? Or do you have certain thought patterns that enter your head that you have to now explore that are really different? I'd just love to understand how this shift takes place in your life and how you are able to approach it emotionally. It's a pretty interesting shift. Um, and and it definitely something happens. And I've seen it now twice. I mean, I saw it then with myself. And I just saw it after Duolingo went public with a lot of, you know, a lot of the early Duolingo employees. Um, it's a pretty interesting shift. I mean, it, it, different people handle it different in different ways. Um, you know, in my case, a few things change in your head. Um, the first is there is this, you know, before that, you always have these kind of thoughts about, um, uh, oh, what, what if I run out of money? Or, oh, man, uh, I, I need to save for, like, buying this house. I need to save for uh, et cetera, et cetera. All of those worries just immediately go away. And, and you, you know, you get a, for some people, and it was the case for me, uh, you get a certain calm, which is like, okay, at least I, you know, I don't have to worry about uh, money in general. I, I mean, you know, back then it's, you know, it's not like, it's not like I could go and buy a submarine that, you know, don't do that. An unusual choice in fairness. <laughs> well, whatever. You know, it's like, I couldn't go and, and spend, you know, buy like a, whatever, like a, uh, you know, $300 million thing or whatever. I just didn't have that amount of money. But uh, you know, it just all kind of normal things that people want, like a new car, a new house, uh, you know, whatever it is. I just didn't have to worry about it anymore. And what I decided to do was uh, never think again about whether something is a good deal or not. That that really frees you up. I mean, it sounds it sounds extremely privileged, but but it really frees your your thinking time. So now I'm just like, uh, you know, I used to kind of spend time looking on the internet, like, can I buy a better you know, a better plane ticket or whatever. Now it's just I spend zero time. Well, well, this is started back then. I spend zero time. Like, you know, could I could I spend fifty dollars less doing the same thing? Sure, but I just didn't didn't spend any more time doing that. Now the other thing that I think really um, helped me because I've seen this kind of go badly. It helped a lot that I, I 
you know, I, I live, I still live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I do not live in New York or Silicon Valley. Um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is uh, not a particularly wealthy city and, and people don't do crazy stuff here. So if you, you know, if you're in New York, it's pretty easy to spend $20 million on some ridiculous thing. In Pittsburgh, you sort of can't. Uh, I mean, for example, you know, the most expensive house in all of Pittsburgh is probably $5 million. Like there's just not, you can't do that. The most expensive house in New York City, I'm sure is, I don't know, $200 million, some crazy, crazy amount. Um, and people are not flaunting their wealth or anything like that here in Pittsburgh. So I think it's, I think it really grounded me. Um, and I, I feel that had I been in New York City or in, in you know, Silicon Valley or something, I, I, uh, you very quickly see that, oh, well, your neighbor also has a lot of money and they just bought themselves, you know, some, something to completely crazy. Uh, and you're like, oh, I want that too. Um, what, whatever it is, <laughs> I, I don't you know, I don't know if submarine is the right thing, but whatever it is. Uh, and so I, I think that that's when I see it go kind of a little nuts. Uh, but but in this case, I think it just really grounded me a lot being in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The secret way to manage your finances, moving to Pittsburgh. Okay, so let's get into the weeds of building Duolingo. Remember, it's the market leader with 500 million users. When Luis and his co-founder Severin first launched Duolingo in 2012, they focused on just teaching people a handful of languages, including English. The whole idea was that users would learn by repeatedly using the app. But... That's what every app creator wants, right? So how did they actually get people to do that? We made a, a bunch of good decisions early on. At the time, we didn't know they were such good decisions, but you know, looking back, there were, there were a few key things that we really did right. And because of that, Duolingo started growing a lot and started becoming, I mean, it became the most downloaded app in all of education, not just, not just language learning, but of any kind of education app. Um, uh, for the last 10 years in a row, Duolingo has the been the most downloaded app in education in both iPhones and Androids, if you look worldwide. Um, and the, the, the things that we did early on, right, there were a couple of things. Um, one was um, uh, making it free was a really good idea. Um, uh, we just like, look, and at first we weren't even trying to make money. We were just like, look, it's just a free way to learn languages. That gave us, you know, a lot of people were downloading it because it was free. Um, and it, that, so that was a big thing. The other thing that was a good idea was we realized, you know, in the first, when we were working on Duolingo early on, before we launched it, uh, what happened was I made the first Spanish course because I'm a, a, a native Spanish speaker and we had this deal. I would make a Spanish course and Severin would learn Spanish with it. So he was going to try it by him learning Spanish and he, he would make a German course and I would learn German. And so that's what we were doing early on. And we found that neither of us could stick with it. We were like, you know, we, you know, we would see each other in the morning and, you know, he would ask me like, did you do your, your German? I'm like, oh my God, no, it's so boring. I didn't do it. And he, he'd confessed to me that also he didn't do his. He's like, oh, it's so boring. And, and, and we thought, okay, look, we're very committed to this. I mean, I had just quit my job to, to, to do this. I'm very committed to this. Um, but we can't get ourselves to do it. Uh, this is, this is crazy. And so we realized and this is the thing I still believe, the hardest thing about learning something by yourself or learning a language or learning a language by yourself, but really learning anything by yourself is staying motivated. It's just really hard to stay motivated, even for highly motivated people like us. I mean, we're both highly driven individuals. We couldn't stay motivated to learn the language. And we thought, okay, the, the key problem we need to solve is motivation. And so this is when we started really uh, working on not just teaching well, but trying to figure out how to make it as fun as possible. 
And this is one of the best decisions we made. So by the time we launched Duolingo, the, the other reason it grew a lot was because it was fun. I mean, we had we had added all kinds of things to try to keep ourselves motivated, but it turned out that motivated other people too. You know, we added points, uh, we added progress bars that people really love to fill progress bars. We kind of made the whole thing feel a lot like a game. And so the combination of it being free and fun um, really made it that people just started downloading it a lot, and and that was that you know that and it grew a lot, and so the, that was um, that combined with a a, a a really lucky strike, which was we were exactly at the right time on mobile. We put a mobile app in 2012, which is exactly when mobile apps were starting to grow, and that was just the right timing. That is not like we were smart about that. That was just luck. Um, so the. Yeah, and it always always plays a big part in people's journey. It's funny you mentioned motivation. I literally this morning did a a, a tweet uh, because I saw a quote, and I just wanted to retweet the quote because I thought it was superb by a guy called Zig Ziglar. And it said, "People often say that motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why I recommend you do it daily." <laughs> yep. So good. So daily motivation. But is that basically, I mean, that's basically the principle of what you found, right? Is uh, the constant nudges. And also, you know, I suppose um, now in 2022, we're so much more conscious about what regular nudges on mobile, you know, do for your mental health, your distraction, your attention. Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? In 2012, everything's fair game, right? It's really just about like, how do I motivate and take someone towards a positive action? That's exactly what. That's exactly the idea. And this is so we got very good at things like um, our 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 push notifications. We got very good at that. Um, we got very good. The other thing that we got very good at is this concept of a streak, um, where uh, you know on Duolingo, um, uh, you know the idea is that if you use Duolingo for seven days in a row, you have a streak of size seven of length seven. If you miss the next day, it goes down to zero. So the streak is just how many days in a row you've used Duolingo. That has been a very powerful mechanic. I mean, one of a really, uh, uh, I love the stat. We have about one and a half million daily active users who have a streak longer than 365, meaning that they have not missed a single day in the last year or more. Um, and so, you know, we just got really good at that, at, at motivating people to do something every single day. And that, you know, that turned it into a habit. So there's all these people out there that just have a habit to use Duolingo every single day. And and that, you know, that's 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 probably been one of the biggest sources of our success. I think this thing when you're trying to understand, you know, uh, building a, a great product, certainly, you know, what is it at the core that you're really responsible for making this a good business or not? And actually habit formation is the one, right? It's just essential. You can't do anything unless you can really master and understand where does my product play a place in this person's daily life. If you can figure that out and figure out how to bring them back and keep, like you say, figuring out motivation, you're onto a winner. Yeah, and that's that's how we see it too. I mean, and the other thing that we see is, you know, by now uh, we understand where we're at, which is Duolingo delivers education through a mobile phone. Uh, it's The mobile phone is an amazing delivery mechanism because, you know, not 100% of humanity has one, but you know, kind of two-thirds of humanity has a smartphone. Um, this is an amazing delivery mechanism. You can deliver it very cheaply, but it has this one humongous problem, which is it comes with TikTok and it comes with Instagram. And uh, you know, the, we understand where we're at. Our competitor is time. Uh, it's it's TikTok, it's Instagram, etc. So, so we spend a lot of effort 
trying to make sure that people really have an enjoyable time learning on Duolingo and have built a habit so that they so that they learn more and more. And that's that, that that's where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, gonna, we're going to have to learn new languages uh, or the next generation anyway, Gen Z, you're going to be learning new languages in five second blocks. But this is this is what we're finding out. I mean, and, and in fact, you know, this is um internally, we talk a lot about this. Um, Duolingo was a product that grew with millennials um, because, you know, in 2012, millennials were kind of the young people. Um, I still consider myself young, Luis. Yeah, well, I mean, me too, but <laughs> sorry. Uh, at this point, you know, people are calling us old. But we, but we, you know, we grew based on a product that taught you in three-minute chunks. For millennials, three-minute chunks were good. We now understand that for the next generation, Gen Z, three-minute chunks are a bit long. And so we are actually working on making uh, the minimum Duolingo kind of chunk to be a few seconds, um, maybe 20 seconds or something like that. We're actually working on doing something like that because we realize that if we don't, uh, somebody else will come along that, that teaches languages in 20 second chunks. And, and that's that, we, we won't be the product for that generation. So I understand why you want to do that Duolingo. I like, I totally understand, you know, uh, you have to understand your user's behavior and you have to figure out a really slick way to be competitive. But what do you professionally, as someone that's been literally building an understanding, I mean, the core of what you've had to understand other than habits is how do people learn languages in a way that will make it stick so they can actually do that thing in real life with other people? I, so I, I think I think it works. Um, but, you know, the way we see it ourselves is it. I'm sure it works. Um, is it? You know, is the 10 second chunk the most effective way? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, you have to do it. It just, you know, it's like, it's, you just have to admit reality. The, the reality is, if you don't do that, there's all these things that like linear TV is dying. There's all this stuff that you could, you could stick your head in the sand and say, no, no, no. The only way to teach a language is to two hour lectures. Um, that's the only way to do that. Uh, you could, you could stick your head in the sand and then just nobody will, will learn, learn with you. So. Uh, you know, it's it's a good question, um, uh, but, you know, we just have to embrace it. Well, I think about this a lot. My, my mother's a linguist, so she speaks five languages. I, I've often thought, as technology improves, um, I mean, even look at Google Translate. It's an amazing product. Like, really is quite amazing. It is. As technology improves and, and like, the hardware around this kind of stuff improves, like, like you must have a very strong perspective on the future of languages and surely your biggest competitor isn't TikTok and how do we help people learn the language properly? It's this idea of like, is anyone even going to bother learning a language because we'll be able to speak English and it will be translated into Papua New Guinean for us? Yeah, you know, I've thought a lot about this. I'm That actually, I, I'm not worried about that, at least for Duolingo. And I'll tell you why. There's a couple of reasons. I mean, already Google Translate is good. It's I don't I don't you know it can be improved, but it's 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 good enough. Like it's 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 almost perfect. Um, there is a couple of things that happen uh, there. First of all, if you look at Duolingo's users, we have two big groups of users. The first big group is people who are learning English. They're 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 doing so to improve their life, either getting into a better school or getting into a be getting a better job or something. That's a, more than half of our users are learning English. 
The other big group is people who are learning languages that are not English, like Spanish or French or whatever. The overwhelming majority of these people are doing so as a hobby. Neither of these groups are going to stop learning because of Google Translate. The, the English learners actually want to know English because they don't want to go around with a device. And the other thing with these devices that you have is there's an inherent problem, which is the delay. It's not, this is, you cannot fix this. This is not a technology problem because word order changes. So for example, in German, uh, the, usually the verb goes at the end. So a German sentence is something, you know, to, you know, a translation, like a very direct translation of a German sentence would be something like, I did something yesterday. I did it with my friend. I did it fast. And what I did was run. You can't quite translate that way. You would have to wait until they said, oh, run. Okay. And then the way you really translate that sentence is, I ran yesterday with my friend, you know, fast. And then the people who are learning for a hobby, well, whatever, they're just learning for a hobby. Um, it's kind of similar. You know, there are people who, you know, we, we have calculators and we still got to learn how to add and subtract and divide and stuff like that. So I, we're just not particularly worried about that. You know, if I don't, particularly want to learn whatever language, you know, Italian or something, I, I have no problem using Google Translate to, to, to get around. But, but you know, if, if my hobby is to learn Italian, I'll just learn Italian. You said, you said earlier in the interview, uh, there were a lot of things you did right. Um, now, you talked about already uh, timing. You talked about offering the product free. So there's an angle of business model, delayed gratification, ended up becoming a, a, a freemium product. So as I understand it, you get an ad-free products basically if you pay and that's worked really well for you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, I think that there's also another angle of, uh, of your competitive advantage, which is super interesting that you haven't talked about at all yet in this interview. And I'd love you to share, which is the idea of crowdsourcing, which actually very much comes back to the things that you learned uh, during capture and recapture, right? Yeah, there are two places where, we, where this came up. Um, the first place where this came up was in expanding the number of languages that we taught. Um, early on, we, you know, when we launched Duolingo, you could learn Spanish, German, and English. Uh, first, you know, that, that's all you could learn. But as soon as we launched, we started getting requests for like a lot of languages. I mean, people, you know, of course, you know, they'd be like Italian and Japanese, but. We started getting requests for a lot of languages. You know, can you teach me, uh, you know, Esperanto? Can you teach me Swedish? Can you teach me Icelandic, et cetera? And we realized it was a small team at the time. Um, we maybe had, maybe had 20 employees or 25 employees or something. And we realized there's no way we're ever really going to uh, you know, have the, the, the ability to, to add a language like Swedish or something like that. Um, fortunately... At the time, a lot of the people that would, because they love Duolingo, they would say, hey, please, can you can you add Portuguese or whatever language? And and they would say, you know what? I love Duolingo. I, I'll help you do it. I know I know the language. Like, I'll help you do it. And we got enough of these people telling us that, that we realized we could just open up our tools. We, we had made internal tools for adding a new language to Duolingo. We just opened them up to the public. And this allowed us to scale the number of languages that we added, that, that, that we had from like three to like 40 very quickly. But that was one place, you know, early on crowdsourcing allowed us to scale. The other place where we use, it's not exactly crowdsourcing, but that is a major competitive advantage for us is we just have so many users. We have more users than any other learning application out there. And, and by, by, by a wide margin, we have like 10 times as many users than, than, than anybody else. 
that is a competitive advantage because we use the data from people learning to teach better. Um, so we, we actually can, we can see, I mean, every single day, about a billion exercises are uh, answered on Duolingo. Um, and and we, we use that to teach better because we know we, we, we can, we, first of all, we can do experiments. So we can say like, oh, uh, should we teach plurals before adjectives or adjectives before plurals? Okay, we don't know the answer to that. Let's do an experiment. For the next 50,000 people that sign up, to half of them, we teach them plurals before adjectives. To the other half, we teach them adjectives before plurals. And then we can measure which ones learn better. Uh, so this is the type of stuff we can do with the data. And, and that has really just gotten us into a positive feedback loop in terms of uh, just teaching better and better faster than anybody else. I mean, we have the data that shows that it works. I mean, we have we run a lot of efficacy studies. One of the latest ones we have uh, shows that if you use Duolingo and you get to a certain point in in the app, you you learn the equivalent of five university semesters of the language education, and actually you learned it in half the time. So it works. You know, we talked about the Duolingo journey, and uh, and and obviously you've taken it from. Uh, an idea to 500 million plus users, the most downloaded education app year after year in the whole entire world. So a phenomenal business. Three really cool uh, m- like moments and, and, and arcs to your journey as well. Um, I guess I'd love to know what you think the next chapter is. Like post Duolingo, call it 10 years because you've got shareholders that might be listening and they wouldn't want to think you'd ever leave. To, you know, But you know, in the next decade, if you weren't running Duolingo, what do you think you will be doing? Uh, at this point in time, I've spent the last 10 years really building the com- a company that I'm happy to work for, that I think has a, a, you know, a lot of good things. I wouldn't want to start over on something else. It just uh, I, I don't know if I have the patience to, to start over on something else. It was just so hard to get to where I am with a company that I like, etc. So I, I would say there are many things I want to accomplish. I think the majority of them are going to be done inside Duolingo. Certainly, uh, uh, in terms of education, um, you know, so I'd say that's that. And it's funny, I mean, even um, uh, one thing I wanted to accomplish was I love tacos. I I really do. And uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there are not great tacos. And uh, I wanted to start uh, a taco restaurant. And so we started a taco restaurant inside Duolingo. So Duolingo now owns a taco restaurant. Um, so most most things that I'm going to be doing are going to be inside Duolingo. Yeah, this is like one of those, you know, if you had all the money in the world and you become a crazy rich dude, what are you going to do? And like, actually, your answer to that question is, I'm going to start a taco shop. That's what that's what wealth gives you, right? Freedom to choose. And you choose the taco <laughs> shop, and that's perfectly reasonable. Um, okay, final question. What advice do you have to entrepreneurs that are listening to you and want to go on a similar inspiring journey and ideally improving the world? You know, probably the the, the biggest piece of advice is to think in the long term um that that to me has been really useful and and you know it's i think it's bill gates who has this amazing quote which is like people usually overestimate what they can do in a year but underestimate what they can do in a decade um if you really you know particularly if you're starting a company you really should think okay what is what is the 10-year arc of this company think in a 10-year arc um, that is that that is very useful, and it makes you do things better. A, a lot of times, early stage entrepreneurs um, uh, uh, do things that are that are good for like the next month, but that if you think in the ten year arc, you realize that that move is actually going to kill you in a few years. Either over monetizing their product too fast, or doing kind of uh, uh, you know either sketchy or, or or you know sometimes fraudulent things. 
uh, just to make money fast. Uh, that usually never pays off. So I, I, I would, I would, I would say, you know, think in a ten-year arc. Amazing. Luis, thank you so much for your time. It's been a massive pleasure learning from you and uh, having you share your insights with our whole community of listeners. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me. Luis von Arn, co-founder of Duolingo, a rare combination of genius inventor and businessman. I hope you enjoyed this first episode in our new series of Secret Leaders. We'll be back next week with more inspiring stories from the world's top entrepreneurs. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcasts, Will Stolleman.